Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. And I'm Ethan Elkind. On tonight's show, we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at the U.N. Climate Conference COP27. State of the Bay listeners, you are in for a treat because our own Ethan Elkind was there rubbing elbows with world leaders and trying to make this world a better place for us all to live in. If you have questions about COP27, here's our number, 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. We'll open the phone lines now so you can call in and hear the inside scoop about what went on. Well, I'm excited to talk about COP27, but (laughs) after I talk, we're going to hear Grace's interview with former Fox News host Gretchen Carlson, who has played an integral role in passing legislation to combat sexual harassment and sexual assault on the job. And so let's get back to COP27. I'm excited for my Gretchen Carlson interview. She's an amazing person. But I want to talk about the climate because for 12 days earlier this month, nations, governmental organizations, companies, and more gathered in Egypt for climate talks, as we said, known as COP27. Earlier climate summits like COP21 held in 2015 resulted in agreements like the Paris Climate Accord, which set climate change targets for nations. As we said, State of the Bay's Ethan Elkind attended COP27 in the capacity of his day job, and he's here to tell us what he heard, what he learned, what he saw. So welcome to the other side of the desk, Ethan. Thank you, Grace. The tables have turned. I'm looking forward to this. This is like uh, combat among co-hosts. This is great. <laughs> um, well, you have a day job. You're not just the fabulous co-host of State of the Bay. Tell us a little bit about your job. Well, that's correct. I do work outside of my uh, my role at KALW. So I direct the climate program at UC Berkeley Law School's Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment, and we help develop law and policy solutions to pressing environmental challenges like climate change. We do a lot of work, uh, policy reports, convenings, conferences, all to help figure out how we can reduce emissions. And we do that work a lot focused on California policies, but we also do work internationally, and this uh, trip to Egypt was an example of some of the, the outreach and the gatherings and the speaking that we do really all around the world to try to promote, in some cases, California's success stories, but also just what's needed in general to decarbonize our economy and help avert the worst impacts of climate change. So when you went to the Egypt climate talks, what, what, what capacity were you going there as? So I was going with a couple of different hats on. Uh, one, we at, at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment have been working with a very powerful uh, state agency in California, the California Air Resources Board. And we've had uh, representatives from the Air Resources Board on State of the Bay multiple times. But that really is the state's quarterback for our climate change program, uh, meaning that this is the agency really in charge of setting standards on vehicle emissions, for example, and setting the overall strategy for the state to decarbonize California's economy, which is the fourth or fifth largest in the world. Uh, And the California Air Resources Board asked our center to support them in their role as chair of a global entity called the Transport Decarbonization Alliance. It's uh, abbreviated as TDA. It's basically the entity that after the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement uh, is now in charge of meeting the world's 
transportation decarbonization goals. So that's what TDA is all about. They have rotating chairs. And for this year and next year, it is the California Air Resources Board. So I was going in part to support the Air Resources Board uh, in sort of spreading the gospel of transport decarbonization and organizing some events. And then the second hat that I was wearing was on behalf of an institute we have based at our center called the California China Climate Institute. This was started by former Governor Jerry Brown when he left office for the second time after four terms as governor (laughs) of California. This was really his legacy project on climate change. He's very active on climate change. It was one of his key priorities as governor of California. And he really wanted to create an institute based at Berkeley with other UC partners that helps foster dialogue between California and China, which is particularly important when you have a lot of tension between the national government here in the U.S. with China. So an effort to foster cooperation. So I did some events for the Cal China Climate Institute as well. I think when people think about the climate um, accords and these these conferences, they think, okay, well, big nations are there, China, the United States, et cetera. Um, but they might not think of a state like California being represented. You mentioned that we're either the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world, depending on who, what um, table you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Are there other states there? Are there other entities similar to our own sweet California? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, we should recognize that California really is the leader in the United States, if not the world, on climate action. I mean, certainly mm. there are many countries, jurisdictions doing a lot, but California has just consistently been a strong actor on climate change. It's really helped lead the world to develop markets for things like zero emission vehicles, renewable energy, uh, et cetera. So California really is treated like a rock star. Uh, the California delegation that goes to these climate conferences often mobbed and invited to speak at many different <laughs> Uh, events. Uh, But there are other states as well. So, for example, at the events that I was at, Governor Jay Inslee from the state of Washington uh, was participating at a number of events and not just states, but many cities, too. So, for example, I ran into Oakland's own Mayor Libby Schaff uh, and her environmental uh, advisor, Daniel Hamilton. They were speaking at, I think, about 17 different events while they were there. So a lot of cities that are doing a lot on climate action get uh, a lot of prominent speaking roles. And it's not just those sort of subnational state and cities within the United States, but really all over the world, because the same story repeats itself in other countries where you have certain provinces or certain cities within countries that are really leading on climate. And so leaders from those jurisdictions often get you know, top billing at, at some of these discussions, mm-hmm. uh, some of these panels that go on at the conference, and, and sometimes even within the negotiating room, too. I like to think of the California delegation as the Taylor Swift of climate. I mean, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but easier to get tickets. Easier to get tickets. Probably so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when, we, when it comes to actually making the agreements, to making the, okay, we're all going to reach these targets, we're all going to do these things, is California at the table with nation states to encourage, you know, know, the United States to agree to things or to modify agreements? Or is California there as an example? I mean, what what role does the state play in actually coming to a part of the agreement? Yeah. So sadly for Californians, we don't have a seat at the table. We are a subnational. And this whole UN climate conference, the parties to it are, are nations, not uh, individuals, you know, subnational entities. So California actually doesn't have a seat at the table. Then actually getting passes to even access the the blue zone area, which is the area restricted for those negotiating and observing the negotiations, uh, which is really kind of the the cool place to be if you're in that world. (laughs) 
uh, <laughs> California has to sort of scrounge for access uh, badges to get in. These mm. badges are often hard to come across. So um, so that's the, the state that we're in. But there are many uh, different NGOs and other entities willing to support California's access. And then I'll also just say that you know, the State Department, particularly when we have a friendly administration to California climate action, which happens when recently when Democrats uh, hold the White House, then you will have, see some coordination among California officials and State Department officials. Uh, certainly, California doesn't want to run afoul of the State Department, which has the lead role here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but there's coordination and information sharing and, and California's perspective, just like the perspective of other states within the U.S. and cities are are represented in those negotiations. So this conference is COP27. So can we assume that that this is the 27th convening um, to address climate change? Yeah, so this all comes out of uh, the original framework that was negotiated back in the early 90s. So this is uh, the 27th Conference of the Parties, and, and part of that negotiation that took place in the early 90s, but there, there would be an annual meeting uh, for the uh, principals and the negotiators involved to check in, and, and they have a series of, of mandates to do so. Uh, there are all meetings throughout the year as well, but this really is the big uh, climate conference that the UN holds every year. Uh, and this is a 27th one. We've had them every year since the early 90s, with the exception of 2020, of course, when, when COVID really shut things down. So and I, I mentioned the Paris Accord um, from 2015. There was also the Kyoto Protocol in 1997. I mean, some years are known for what they're able to accomplish more than others. So tell us, Ethan, what was the focus this year? So the focus this year, it was not as monumental as, as certainly the Paris Agreement. That really was uh, that that was a culmination of multiple years of negotiations back in 2015 when it was held at Paris uh, to try to set the world on a target to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, by the end of the century. Uh, and it's pretty dicey that if we're going to be able to hold to that, but mm. it's theoretically w- within our, our realm. And so the, now the negotiations are a little bit more modest and in many ways are about implementing the Paris Agreement. And, and for this particular COP, Conference of the Parties, it was really about loss and damage. So what that means is we're experiencing the impacts of climate change now and uh, developing economies, developing world countries are really experiencing in many cases the brunt of climate impacts now. And I think a, a, a great and tragic example of this is some of the extreme flooding that we saw in Pakistan uh, recently from unprecedented rainfall events. And we've certainly experienced it here in the United States, too. I mean, here we had Hurricane Ian in Florida, which in other hurricanes, Hurricane Harvey in Houston a, a number of years ago, all the result of much higher than average temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico, which contributed to very severe hurricanes. So you know, that the United States, you know, it's tragic when it happens here, but, you know, we have the resources in many cases to try to, you know, repair and deal with the impacts here. But for these developing world countries, these impacts can be absolutely devastating to their economy, not to mention loss of life and harm to public health, et cetera. And I think from the perspective of the, the leaders of these countries, from the, 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 the people who live in these countries, they're feeling like we are the victims of a changing climate that we did not produce. It was not our fault and our emissions that have has led to climate change. And yet we are bearing the brunt of all the impacts so that it's on the developed world. Those who have benefited economically in terms of lifestyle, you know, cultural, technological development from a free market system that has created climate change. We now need to pay for the damage that we have 
essentially foisted on the world. And that is the attitude of, uh, and I think justifiably so, of many of the countries and the leaders of these countries at, at these climate change conferences. And it really came to a head this year where they demanded a, a separate fund, not mm. just a sort of agreement in principle that there would be compensation for loss and damage under under climate change, but, but the creation of a fund. The United States was not really too excited about it. John Kerry sort of cast doubt uh, a number of months before the conference began as to whether or not it would be something feasible to set up. But at the end of the day, they did agree to set up a fund for loss and damage that, you know, pre- presumably wealthier nations will contribute mm-hmm. to. But I think it really r- remains to be seen if there actually will be any significant resources attached to it. And based on the experience we've had with other funds set up in different contexts under this framework, I, I doubt it's going to be very robust. But I think it's an important symbolic marker and something mm. potentially to build on. So the real focus is on things that have been lost, things that have been damaged um, by climate change versus coming up with solutions to prevent future damage. In other words, I mean, is the idea that in Pakistan with this devastating flooding, we're going to be sending or this fund will send more money to Pakistan so they can rebuild versus creating a a flood structure or something Mm -hmm. to prevent future floods? No, it's a great question. It really is twofold. And it it basically goes to both of your your sort of scenarios here, which is on one hand, these these countries in many cases need disaster relief. So Mm -hmm. I think that kind of expense would be eligible under this under this fund, but also about building in long term resilience. Uh, making sure that you know communities are built in ways that they're not going to be prone to to flooding, uh, or in the case of places like California, we, we have wildfires. Of course, we're not really eligible for such a fund, but you can mm. imagine uh, many places around the world also are dealing with wildfire impacts. And so it's going to cost a lot of money to fortify flood zones, sea level rise, uh, fortify against extreme weather events and wildfires, all the things that we're starting to see now really pick up the pace because of climate change. Mm. Uh, All those things are going to require money to to relocate, fortify communities and build in processes, emergency response and evacuation, things like that, Mm -hmm. that all these countries are going to need support. Uh, dealing with. And that's where this fund would come into play. Well, I wanted to reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW San Francisco. I'm Grace Wan here with my co-host and today our guest, Ethan Elkind. We're talking about the recent UN Climate Conference. What have you always wanted to know about uh, the climate change accords? What are your, What is your view on whether these agreements are going to be followed through on? Is it just window dressing or are these important things that are happening? You can join the conversation by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or you can email us at stateofthebay at org, or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. So, Ethan, we were talking about the fund, and I, I'm curious, who is supposed to be contributing to it? So there's a group of countries called Annex One countries. They're basically the developed world, and they're sort of the usual suspects. You know, the G20, for example, uh, America, countries in the European Union. Uh, these are countries that are developed, have the resources, and have contributed disproportionately to climate change through all the industrial activities that have burned fossil fuels, pulled up from the ground, and 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 emitted into the atmosphere. So those are the countries that would be contributing into this fund. And and like I said, there was disagreement about it. The United States did sort of drag its feet on contributing. I mean, the United States does provide foreign aid, but I think that for different reasons, they had objections to, to this fund. It didn't feel like the sort of legwork had been done in advance mm-hmm. of the conference to set it up. But And the negotiations went into overtime to finalize this, by the way. I, I left on Thursday evening, uh, the week before 
Thanksgiving and the conference was supposed to conclude Friday, but it went through until I believe Sunday night. So a lot of those negotiators there, I think, were pretty sleep deprived and exhausted, mm-hmm. but they did uh, did get that fund established. It was busy in the blue zone. Yes, exactly. that is for sure. Um, so how is China treated in these um, in these accords? I mean, they are a major contributor to pollution. And um, I'm curious, you know, what's their role? Yeah, well, China right now is the single biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. Of course, from an historical perspective, it's the United States and uh, and the countries in the European Union, uh, by and large. So China is critical to solve. Um, I think from their perspective, they feel like they didn't exactly create this problem, even though they're the biggest emitter now. And uh, But they are interested in the solution. They're well aware of the vulnerabilities that they have to climate change. You know, the same droughts and flooding and sea level rise that affect us affects them as well. And, they, and they're concerned about that. I think they also see a, a real economic motivator to really corner the market on some of the technologies we need to fight climate change. So you look at, for example, the batteries that go into most electric vehicles. China has the, the uh, predominant share of the battery production, the supply chain uh, over in, in, in that country. Not only do they manufacture a lot of the batteries, but they even own some of the mines around the world uh, to produce things like lithium and uh, cobalt. So I think, and and they similarly have cornered the market in a lot of ways on solar panels, although a lot of that production now has shifted to other countries within Asia. Uh, but China is looked at as, you know, a really critical piece of the puzzle. You know, unfortunately, the, po- the politics here have complicated things. And Nancy Pelosi's visit earlier this year to Taiwan basically led China to boycott discussions with the U.S. Uh, around you know everything, but in, including uh, climate change. And so they really were not a presence uh, at this particular COP, although there was a separate agreement that uh, President Biden, after he spoke at the COP, he went to Bali for the G20 summit, and there was a separate agreement that they, they worked out there. I'm not mm. privy to all the details there, but <laughs> Ch- China is very critical. And I think because of the tension, it really underscores what I was saying earlier about how important it is for California mm-hmm. to maintain its relationship with China, because there's a lot of opportunities that we can collaborate on to tackle climate change together. Well, let's take a caller. We have Isabel on, um, on the line. She was at COP27. Welcome to State of the Bay, Isabel. Hi, I am loving this episode. Um, I, like was said, I got to attend the second week of COP27, and I'm a Bay Area resident. I'm from Marin. And I had the pleasure, actually, of speaking to um, Secretary Ross of the California Department of Food and Agriculture and Mayor Schaaf from Oakland, and I thought that they were both really incredible spokespeople and spoke to a lot of the um, innovative and really compelling measures that California has taken. Um, but I also was really closely following loss and damage, which is exciting. There's a lot going on, as was already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Some of it may be more kind of compelling than others. But I got to be in the room, actually, when the Santiago Network on loss and damage was operationalized, which was probably the highlight of the week for me. Wow. Isabel, what was, in what capacity were you at the conference? Um, I'm a Duke student, and I'm part of uh, the Duke UNFCCC practicum, which is a graduate class, but there are a few undergrads in it. Mm-hmm. And we got to go for part of the week, which is really exciting. Are you saying you got tickets to the Blue Zone? I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, it was a really, really amazing experience. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, you're a student um, and, you know, a lot of what we're talking about today is meant for your generation and the generations be- uh, bef- next after you. What do you think? Does, does Do events and um, conferences like COP27 give you hope, Isabel? I think so. I mean, 
I think it was a little concerning personally it's, uh, when I was there for the second week. There's a lot of talk about this being the COP um, for implementation, and a lot of the negotiators, negotiators that I heard from were concerned that there wasn't enough of that. But mm-hmm. I think by the end, when you kind of see the like scramble to get more stuff done, mm-hmm. it was like personally a really thrilling experience, and it made me more excited to do this work once I graduate. So sometimes it may not seem like the most efficient process, but I think it's really um, exciting that we at least have this work at the international level. Well, thanks so much for calling, Isabel, and thanks for your insights to COP27. You should definitely get in touch with Ethan Elkind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just want to add, Isabel, thank you for calling in, and I'm just so glad you had a chance to go. I I do agree with your assessment that, you know, in in a lot of ways, these UN climate conferences are very frustrating. They're they're really beholden to the lowest common denominator. Uh, And the real action ultimately happens in different cities and provinces and states and, and nations that have to actually set the policies. Are they going to phase out fossil fuels? Are they going to mandate zero emission vehicles, zero emission buses? Are they going to mandate more renewable energy? That's really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to climate action. And these UN climate conferences aren't really about that. Mm. And like I say, are often hijacked by those sort of lowest common denominators. But at the same time, it's hard to imagine not having this kind of thing. We, right. we have to have some kind of international summit where people are held to account. There's public scrutiny. Uh, and then there's also, and I think Isabel really you know, exemplifies this in a lot of ways. It's, it's not just the negotiations that happen, but you know, that goes on behind closed doors. But there's a whole separate conference, essentially, of folks who have a chance to meet each other, aren't negotiating, but have a chance to meet each other, exchange ideas, uh, get energized, create uh, new opportunities for collaboration. And all that happens kind of around this event. So it's it's truly a unique opportunity to go to a place. And, you know, I, I bumped into I bumped into an activist from Ghana doing really mm. interesting work, for example, uh, empowering community members to track uh, air pollution through uh, remote sensors. And that's someone I just bumped into while I was in line for a SIM card, you know, at the, <laughs> at the, at the mobile phone desk. And, you know, we struck up a conversation and, uh, we're, you know, we're going to see if we can collaborate. But that's just an example of the kind mm. of thing that can happen, those kind of serendipitous encounters and often more formal encounters that can really only happen at this type of international, you know, event like this. Well, Ethan, you mentioned that, you know, what is this a place where the rubber meets the road? And I mean, we can't not talk about emissions because that's something that you spend so much time working on in transportation. Tell us a little bit from your perspective as somebody who is working really hard to make sure that our emissions are zero, get to zero. What came out of the conference in that regard? Yeah, well, I think there was a lot of criticism that there wasn't more attention paid to actually uh, what is happening on the ground with different nations and their efforts to to reduce their emissions in line with that original 2015 Paris uh, Climate Agreement and Paris Goals. And I think that was unfortunate that that opportunity was missed. Uh, California, on on the other hand, did have a sort of separate goal of really trying to promote its actions to decarbonize transportation. We do have a goal to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045 uh, in this state. And we want to see other jurisdictions kind of sign on to that goal. And specifically with some of the big pollution sources like heavy duty trucks, that's an area where California Mm -hmm. has really led. You know, I think now it's pretty common to see passenger electric vehicles on the road. But the next phase of this is going to be medium and heavy duty vehicles like those really polluting trucks, Mm. getting uh, more battery powered trucks. And California, you know, 
California doesn't want to go alone on this. That yeah. would be very, uh, be a lot more expensive if, if we were the only market for this. So mm-hmm. a big part of California's goal is getting out to other jurisdictions, letting them know about all the available technology already in existence and on the roads for zero emission, heavy duty vehicles, and encouraging others to get aggressive about setting similar goals. Because if they set those goals too, that means a much bigger market for this type of technology, which means it's going to be much cheaper for companies to comply uh, with California's mandates on phasing out these types of uh, polluting trucks. You know, I think sometimes the problem seems so big that people feel hopeless. But I just want to point out, I mean, 12 years ago, we were looking at electric cars as something just cuckoo from the future. Mm-hmm. You know, we thought we would be driving, who could drive a golf cart down mm-hmm. the freeway? And now there's such a norm. So I think that kind of gives me hope that the technology that we're creating every day is getting us to some solutions uh, on the issues that you're talking about and you're dealing with. And I like the fact that California is playing such a big role. Um, for you, when you think about your work every day in in trying to address these issues? I, I mean, it's a little bit hackneyed question, but it, it's an important one. How do you stay positive and hopeful about the work? Well, I, I think actually what you just said was a great example of it. I've been doing this work now regularly at UC Berkeley since 2009, and the world has changed so dramatically on this issue in that time period. I mean, I remember giving a, a talk at an energy conference in Bakersfield back in 2012, <laughs> and I, I mentioned that I drove a Nissan Leaf, and I almost got booed out of the room. <laughs> uh, you know, people basically were saying, you know, that's great for the Hollywood stars to drive an electric vehicle, but, you know, I drive a Ford F-150, and I, I basically had to sit down and be quiet after that. And now you look at where we're at. I mean, these truly are mainstream technologies and it's been a very short period of time. Now we're, I mean, we still have a long ways to go. It's not over by any means, but we've seen 80, 90% decreases in the price of batteries, which has not only enabled these passenger electric vehicles, but trucks and buses as well. Uh, And solar panel prices have come down. So on the technology side, we've seen incredible progress, which at this point really makes it you know, I don't want to say inevitable that we're going to have this transition because it's not inevitable, although I do think it will happen. The real question now is how quickly is this transition going to happen? And that's mm-hmm. where policy can play a role. But the other area where we've seen a, a lot of uh, hopeful progress, not just the technology, but on the understanding of this issue by the public. You know, this is now one of those top few issues on voters' minds. You hear politicians really you know, leaning into it. And even though it's been polarized, and, you know, there was a time period where the Republican Party you know, really did not accept the science, did not accept climate action. Uh, and there's still a challenge in terms of implementation. You now see bipartisan support for things like investments in renewable energy mm-hmm. and electric vehicles. And, you know, you look at uh, President Biden uh, signing the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a massive infusion of, of uh, federal support for clean technologies on top of the infrastructure law that passed. And you don't actually see a lot of political opposition to it. You know, and you compare that to what happened 10, 12 years ago when Barack Obama tried to get cap and trade passed at the national level and it was demonized. Mm -hmm. So I think even the politics of this are softening. So that all all gives me hope. I mean, I was looking at an article. Jimmy Carter was trying to put solar panels on the White House, and they thought he was absolutely bonkers. And now mm-hmm. it's we think about it as that's what should happen. You know, yeah. what role, Ethan, do you think it plays when President Biden came in, came out to the to COP twenty seven? You know, for the United States, are we in the? Um, do we have the world's attention and? Ha- 
have we regained our stature in the world as a negotiator for climate change? Well, there's no doubt that we took a major reputational hit on this issue with uh, when President uh, Trump was in office. He withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't actually go into effect until right before President Biden came into office. So he brought us right back in. But uh, we took a big reputational a hit on that one. Uh, and also just in general, having a president who was claiming that climate change was a hoax and, and so forth. We all remember, I think, President Trump's uh, pronouncements on this or his mm. tweets on this. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, having Biden back, uh, having Biden in the White House and the United States are back in the Paris Agreement, having President Biden, you know, personally go to Sharm el-Sheikh to give a speech. It, it was a, sort of a touchdown, give a speech and, and fly out. He wasn't there to negotiate like uh, we've seen presidents do in the past, although I don't think he needed to. Uh, I think it was just a more of a symbolic uh, effort to really reinforce that the United States is is, is back on climate action. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you've just come back from COP twenty seven. Is where is what's happening with COP twenty eight? Well, that is going to be in Dubai, um, which is right around the corner from Egypt in, in some mm. ways. There's some criticism of that. But e- actually, the, Egypt was uh, is part of Africa, as for those of you who know your geography mm-hmm. would know. And so Egypt was really representing uh, the African region. Uh, the region of the uh, regions of the world are divided into five and they get sort of rotating opportunities to host these climate conferences. So Egypt had the opportunity to host it. This time it was supported by other African states. Uh, but yeah, next year it will be in Dubai. I will say there was a lot of controversy around having Egypt as a host country. Uh, For those of you not familiar with Egyptian politics, you know, during the Arab Spring, uh, the president of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak, was essentially toppled. And there was a democratic process which led to the election by a plurality of a president who was um, uh, came out of the Muslim Brotherhood, which I think uh, I'm not sure if the U.S. State Department labeled it as an Islamic terrorist organization, but it, it basically was considered a, a radical Islamic organization. And uh, Morsi, the, the elected president, was basically toppled in a military coup. And the military now controls Egypt. So General Sisi, his pictures are plastered all over Sharm el-Sheikh, all over Cairo, where I flew through. Um, And people I talked to in Egypt noted how things have really changed in the country. The police used to be the main security force in the cities, but now the military is a very heavy presence. There, of course, are no real elections. Uh, And Sisi really in some ways, I think, used and the government of Egypt really used this climate conference as an more of a way to sort of burnish their credentials on the world stage rather than, I think, really making a, a concerted effort to to make sure that the negotiations themselves led to a really positive outcome. I think mm. for them, it was sort of a, uh, a nice, uh, you know, formal pat on the back by the international community and lent them some legitimacy that, I, that generated a lot of controversy. There mm. were political prisoners in the, in the prisons in Egypt. There were right. protests, some of it were, which were tamped down. So it was controversial. We only have a few minutes left, but we did get a, a, an email that I wanted to read from a listener who had a specific question for you. Carl asks, how beneficial would it be if we replaced coal with natural gas? Wouldn't this make a bigger difference in solar and wind solutions? What do you think about that's that? A, that's a great question from Carl. Uh, so natural gas is certainly better than coal from a, an emission standpoint, but it's not as good as going to solar and wind. So, you know, natural gas was helpful, you know, 10, 15 years ago as a way to phase out coal-fired power plants, which really are terrible climate polluters. But there's no excuse now to just sort of stick with natural gas. It's still a fossil fuel. We have the technologies of solar and wind combined with energy storage to replicate that power, but do so in a way that's clean and renewable. So I, I don't recommend sticking with natural gas, and we need to phase it out as quickly as possible. 
Yeah, well, I have to say it's so cool to get the inside scoop on what happened there. And uh, Ethan, I, I hope you get to go to COP28 in Dubai. Well, that is the plan. We'll see. And if so, I'm happy to come back and report back. And in the meantime, you know, I'll be sitting in that co-host chair and interviewing (laughs) folks on these issues. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your experiences at COP27, Ethan. Let's hope these UN climate conferences start to change things for the better. I think they are, actually. So I'm very hopeful. So Yes. Well, thank you, Grace, for your great questions and glad to talk about this experience. Yeah. Well, coming up next, speaking of change and changing things up for the better, we are going to be hearing my interview with former Fox News host Gretchen Carlson. She's been spending a lot of time trying to fix laws regarding sexual harassment and sexual assault. Stay tuned and find out what she's been doing to protect women. Gretchen Carlson is a Stanford graduate, a former Miss America, and a concert violinist. But she is probably best known as a star of Fox News. For more than seven years, she co-hosted Fox & Friends, one of that network's most popular shows. But behind her tremendous success was a darker story. Though she was one of the most prominent women in journalism, Carlson had repeatedly been subjected to an environment of sexual harassment. In 2016, after being fired from Fox, Carlson filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against the network's powerful chairman, Roger Ailes, who she alleged had fired her because she had refused his sexual advances and had complained about the harassment that pervaded the newsroom. Two weeks after she filed her suit, Fox fired Ailes. Then the network also eventually settled with Carlson for $20 million. Her story became the basis of not one, but two dramas, the award-winning movie Bombshell and Showtime's The Loudest Voice, in which she was played by Naomi Watts. But all of this, the lawsuit, the settlement, Ailes' firing, and the movies, all that almost never happened because of an arbitration clause in Gretchen Carlson's employment contract. And for the last five years, Carlson has devoted her time to help other victims of harassment from facing the same legal predicament, which is what brings her here. Gretchen Carlson, it is a real pleasure to welcome you to State of the Bay. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I've outlined some of what you faced during your tenure at Fox. And given all that you went through there, why couldn't you bring a lawsuit in court against the company? Yeah, great question. So I had an arbitration clause in my last work contract with Fox. They slipped one in, in the last contract. And I'm a stickler for details. And so I had seen many contracts before. I asked my lawyer about it, asked my agent about it. And The response I got back was, don't worry about it. Arbitration clauses are everywhere now, and they're becoming the way of the world. Well, unfortunately, they were right, except for Mm -hmm. the fact that they didn't know what I knew, which was I was already thinking about planning this lawsuit. And when I assembled my team of lawyers for the harassment lawsuit, they saw that I had an arbitration clause, and they said to me on one of my darkest days, you don't have a case. And I said, what are you talking about? I have all this stuff. (laughs) And and they were like, no, because you have an arbitration clause, so you're going to go to the secret chamber of arbitration where all of these harassment cases had been adjudicated for the last 40 years or so, and no one's ever going to hear from you ever again. It's a secret process, and you will just go away. Um, and, and I found out that that's what had been happening to all of these cases 
over the last four to five decades. And it's one of the reasons why the American public thought that we had solved harassment in the workplace is because they weren't hearing about these cases. But the reason they weren't hearing about the cases is because they were all going to arbitration. It's precisely why my lawyers came up with the brilliant strategy of suing Roger Ailes, the chairman and CEO, personally, instead of Fox News as an entity to try and circumvent this arbitration clause and at least make my case public and then battle it out in the courts as to whether or not I would actually be thrown back into arbitration. If that had not happened, as you said in the introduction, nobody would have known about my story. And arguably, we would not be in the Me Too movement right now. Mm-hmm. My story was a full 15 months before the Harvey Weinstein revelations and, and ignited that part of the movement. Um, but the sad state of affairs is that this is what has been happening to women and other disenfranchised groups in the workplace for far too long. Well, it's fascinating because, as you said, you were paying attention to your contract. You did see that arbitration clause, but you were told no big deal because everybody has one. And were the people who advised you on that contract, is it just no big deal? Is that how we view it now? Or has that changed in our viewpoint of what an arbitration clause can do in employment? Well, I'm working on it to make sure that everyone <laughs> is educated to know how detrimental it is if you have something bad happen to you at work. I think the reason that I was advised that way is because nobody had raised a red flag about arbitration. I mean, I'm sure, trust me, the thousands of people who reached out to me and had cases thrown into arbitration, they knew that it was a red flag. But oftentimes what happens is you can't talk about your case then because you're also forced to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And so it's just this vicious cycle of secrecy. And sort of this perfect marriage of people who had been advocating against arbitration clauses for these kinds of human rights violations and me coming around the corner, having notoriety so that we aligned together. And finally, they had a face on this issue that they felt like we could make some headway with it. And and that's really when I rolled up my sleeves and decided to get to work to to really try to make change. It's interesting because a friend of mine said to me shortly after my lawsuit, when I was in some some of the darkest days of my life, she said to me, you know, Gretchen, um, you were always meant to do this. Mm -hmm. And I didn't fully comprehend any of that. She also said something good was going to come out of all of this. And I was like, (laughs) "Hmm." Uh, but you know what? She's right. And she often reminds me to this day of how right she was um, with the success that we've had in making the workplace safer for, for millions of other people. But, you know, look, this was an issue that that people just they don't know about it still to this day. We're signing contracts every single day. Millions of people are signing these contracts. They have no idea what they're signing. And then when something bad happens to them, it's too late. And Mm -hmm. that's when they realize that they're basically handcuffed and muzzled um, in the workplace. And so that's part of my mission to it's a big part of my mission to educate and then to also make companies change their policies. Exactly. It's kind of interesting. You're so prominent. You had a, this stellar, amazing career. How did it feel to go from being on the news on a daily basis to, in your words, the poster child of sexual harassment? Obviously, you didn't start your career thinking this is how you would um, go. But how did that make you feel then? And how do you feel now about that? Yeah, you know, like the number one rule in journalism is you're never supposed to become the story. Mm. And I certainly didn't intend to become uh, more well-known for, you know, stepping forward and jumping off the cliff by myself. I knew that I would become the story because my lawyers warned me many, many, many times 
that number one, I'd become the story because I was taking on arguably one of the most powerful men in the world. But also they warned me repeatedly that I was going to be maligned and that mm. people, people would try to kill me. And, and they were right on both fronts. But I will say that I like to always look at the glass half full. And in the work that I do now, I have to wake up optimistic every day. So <laughs> I, I do, um, I do believe that my story turned out as best as it possibly could have based on what I thought was going to happen to me during those first few weeks. And, and you alluded to this again in the introduction, like who would have ever thought that Fox News and the parent company owned by the Murdochs were going to start an investigation? Mm-hmm. I mean, my lawyer said to me, look, they're going to do everything to try and save Ailes and punish you. Mm-hmm. But they started an investigation. Who would have known two weeks later, Ailes was fired? Who would have known that more than 25 women at Fox also came forward? And even if they only told 10% of their stories, it was enough. You know, who would have known that my story would help to ignite a movement that would give people courage all around the world to start telling their stories? You know, who would have known that I would eventually start working on all of this legislation and form my nonprofit, Lift Our Voices? And who would have ever known that in a span of a year that at Lift Our Voices, we would have passed two bipartisan pieces of legislation into law to make workplaces safer just six years later. You know, I think it's a testament to the fact that my life has worked in very mysterious ways. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners can find times in their lives when that's been true as well. And the one thing that's remained constant for me is that I never, ever give up. And I'm an incredibly mm. hard worker and I am relentless. And mm. So whether or not it was becoming a famous journalist and killing myself <laughs> there, or it, it's now to become the number one advocate in the world for making workplaces safer. And the difference now is that I am making the world safer for people I will never meet. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a huge difference from working so hard in your career, which is almost always for yourself. And that's why I've said that this work will be my legacy. There will never be an interview that I can do as a journalist that will be more important than the work that I'm doing now. I love it. Let's talk about the pieces of legislation that your organization, Lift Our Voices, has passed. Tell us a little bit about the first one, which is Ending Forced Arbitration. Um, I think it's called the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Harassment Act. What does that do exactly? And sexual assault. It's a long title. It's, Um, it has everything in it, Gretchen. Yes. Well, 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 it does. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it, it does for harassment and assault at work. It doesn't for all the other bad things that can happen to you at work and lift Mm -hmm. our voices. We are advocating to change policies for all toxic workplace issues. So basically under and anything under Title seven. So any form of discrimination, whether it's gender, race, LGBTQ plus age, disability. Um, that's what we hope to move into after this. But but quite honestly, attacking harassment and assault was the only thing that I could get done on Capitol Hill where I could try to bring both parties together. And mm. so our strategy was to take a bite out of the apple uh, and then go back for more. And, you know, some groups were upset with that because they believe, like I do, that we should have um, equality for all disenfranchised groups. But I knew from my 30 plus years in journalism and covering politics so much at that time that number one, it had to be bipartisan because the issue is apolitical and it should be. And it has to be bipartisan because of the makeup of the House and the Senate. Um, Number two, um, 
if you sometimes go in for a smaller piece of the pie, you're more successful. And I know that's more difficult and, and it's not as um, rewarding sometimes. But the strategy worked in the first case with arbitration because we then went back for more, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. What this bill means is that you don't have to be forced into arbitration anymore if you are harassed or assaulted at work. You have a choice. I would advise women and men to not choose arbitration because it is not an open jury process. It's an arbitrator who's paid a lot of money and is picked by the company. They come back for repeat business, as you can imagine, because the company has a lot of cases and this is your only shot. So there's a bias inherently in this system. Um, there are no appeals. There's no rule of law. There's no precedent. And so when you think about this, if we ever watch law shows on television, they're always referring back to other cases to try and prove their point in their current case, right? You can't do that in arbitration and there's no record of it. So we've lost decades of recording what has happened with regard to these kinds of violations at work. And the worst part is there's no appeals and it's secret. And the predator gets to keep working because nobody knows about it. And you get shunted out and you never work again. That is what arbitration is. And to put it in perspective, in 1991, 2% of all U.S. employees were bound by forced arbitration clauses. And by 2024, 84% of all of us will be bound by forced arbitration clauses. There has been this explosion. And people will say, well, why? And I will say, because it's working to cover crap up. <laughs> it's, it's working to cover up dirty laundry. And up until this point in time, nobody was telling workers about it. So they just kept signing the contracts. And when something bad happened, they got pushed into arbitration. Nobody ever heard from them again. They never worked again in their chosen career. But mm -hmm. companies still had a stellar reputation. And when I saw that, you know what? There is something so wrong mm -hmm. with the process of how we deal with this. And unless we go in and try and change this old school way of dealing with this, we are never going to solve it. So now people have a choice, but the onus is still on you to understand the law. So if something like this is happening to you at work right now, you have to know that you don't have to go to forced arbitration. There are still companies right now that are trying to force people into arbitration and and th those people will come to me and I'll be like, no, you don't have mm -hmm. to do that. So we're educating lawyers. We're educating workers. Um, it's just really important that people know what they're signing and know what their rights are if they happen to have something bad happen to them at work. Well, I think about the position that you were in um, when you were filing your lawsuit and you call it some of the darkest days of your life and just the anxiety that you felt going up against Roger Ailes, going up against Fox. And I think about the average employee, right, who doesn't have your prominence and, you know, the savvy that you had. And when you think about that average employee and you're saying, you know, think about it, the onus is on you to figure out what you want to do. What's your advice? You know, there's so much trauma associated with being harassed at work. You know, how do you fortify yourself to go forth and actually file that lawsuit and make that complaint? I know it's such a personal decision and I've counseled thousands of women over the last six and a half years. And I always, that's the first thing I say to them is it's a personal choice. I can tell you, you know, well, I can't tell you about my journey, but I can, <laughs> I can tell you, um, I can tell you, you know, what I've learned since. And I can tell you in hypothetical ways about, about how to uh, maneuver the system. I would also advocate the book that I wrote, Be Fierce, 
And the fourth chapter, which is my playbook for women, it's my 12-point plan. Um, I encourage people to rip that out and put it in their back pocket. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, the first three points are you always need to get a lawyer's advice on this before you go to HR. Do not go to HR before you understand what your rights are, even if it's just a 10-minute conversation. Um, number two, keep a record of everything and take it home. I can't tell you how many people reached out to me and told me these stories that they had gathered all this evidence, but they kept it in their office. And then when they went to complain, they were fired and they couldn't go back to their office. So make sure you take it home and gather it. Um, and number three is to tell somebody else. I know how hard it is to confide in other people, but but you need to because you need to build this um, witness chain because so many of these cases are he said, she said. So those are just my my top three points. But I always say it's a personal choice. I don't recommend going to HR. I'm sure there's uh, many lovely executives who work in HR, but they're part of the system and sometimes inadvertently, but their paycheck comes from the top. And if the, if the company culture is to push out people who have the courage to come forward and protect predators, then if you go to HR, you're going to get screwed. I mean, and if you have an arbitration clause, they're going to basically go, nobody will ever know about this because we're going to send her over to arbitration now. And that is the beginning of the end for you. Yeah. In, in talking about what happened to you, you've referred to the fact that you can't really talk about what happened to you because of a non-disclosure agreement. Tell us a little bit about not what happened, but the non-disclosure aspect of what's keeping you from talking about it and how you're trying to change that as well. Yes. So the two evils that I believe in the workplace keep us from equity are forced arbitration and non-disclosure agreements. And that's why at Lift Our Voices, we're doing everything in our power to eradicate them. Now, let me be clear, not eradicating NDAs for trade secrets. Every company should be able to hold their secrets, you know, underneath their vest. But these clauses have also become so expansive that on your first day of work, you're signing a forced arbitration clause and one third of all Americans are signing these vast NDAs without knowing it. They think they're only protecting proprietary information. And it doesn't say in that NDA, hey, if something really terrible happens to you, you can't talk about it. No, it's in other kind of legal words that people have no clue what it means. So our next bill, bipartisan bill, was called the Speak Out Act. And that was to eradicate NDAs from the first day of employment up until a formal legal process happens. So you would own your own voice for, you know, a long period of time, which is essential because you can warn other people about what's going on. You can talk about what's going on. Um, the number one thing people say to me uh, after they, they have a case is, I wish I owned my own voice, right? Mm. Because in most of these circumstances, they don't. So I signed one of these NDAs at my first day at Fox. So I couldn't warn anybody else about what was going on with me. And then I also signed an NDA upon resolution with Fox News, which means I can't tell you anything about whatever happened to me at Fox or anything about my resolution. Now, at the time, six and a half years ago, that was a very progressive settlement because I also was able to get a public apology from Fox mm. News, which never happens. And by the way, that's also what survivors want is just an apology. Number two, I was given the ability to talk about these issues, which I have taken full advantage of. But I didn't know that we would be at this place now, this many years later, where we'd actually be having a discussion about not having to sign NDAs anymore. Like, how did I know again that we would be this far along in the movement that NDAs would hopefully become a relic of the past? And so mm -hmm. I signed it because my lawyer said, this is how it works. Right. 
Right. What I'm now telling people is that's not how it works moving forward. You don't have to sign these NDAs. And in states where NDAs have been completely banned, which are New Jersey, California, and Washington State, settlements are still happening even though you can't use NDAs. So that's mm. been a huge thing that we've discovered and we're doing more research on. So if lawyers are listening, if survivors are listening, <laughs> please, please do not automatically think that you have to use an NDA because the person you're working with wants to own their voice. And our research is showing that they can have both, that mm -hmm. they'll be able to find some sort of resolution and that they'll also be able to have their voice. So anyway, in the last eight months, we've passed these two laws and, um, and they're going to make the workplace safer for millions of people. But we're, of course, going back for more. Well, you've talked a lot about the hyperpartisanship of Congress and your two pieces of legislation passed with resounding majorities, uh, people from both sides. Lindsey Graham came out in favor of your legislation. Marsha Blackburn, who's the senator from Tennessee, is also extremely conservative. Is there a blueprint in your work for helping Congress come to solutions about other problems that might not need to be partisan? <laughs> well, it's a great question. Uh, there was a, a very intense strategy about um, trying to get those Republicans that you mentioned, as well as many, many more, um, because, as I said, this issue is apolitical. And I felt that it was so important to show that both parties could come together on behalf of women and agree on something. Um, it's interesting that you say, is there a blueprint for other things? I would like to say yes, because I am a huge believer in compromise. Mm -hmm. um, I have been my whole life. Um, and, and to say that we had overwhelming support on both sides, let me just be very clear that there were a tremendous amount of negotiations behind scenes. <laughs> um, it wasn't just like suddenly, you know, a hundred Republicans last week uh, said, hey, I think we'll vote yes on the Speak Out Act. Um, it wasn't just like within a short period of time that 119 said, I think we'll vote yes on the forced arbitration bill. It took a tremendous amount of conversation and, and trying to get them to, um, you know, to see it from my point of view. But I do think because I worked at Fox News, by the way, I'm a registered independent, so I, I'm a good bridge builder between both sides. Mm -hmm. but, but I do think it helped um, my former workplace. I think it helped get me in the door with Republicans because they had probably been interviewed by me and um, they probably thought, wow, if this could happen to her at Fox News, a place right, that, right. you know, that's friendly to me, um, then maybe I should give this some thought about how it's mm -hmm. happening to other people. I would love to think that that somehow um, my blueprint can be strategic for gun laws, um, for even abortion. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope that my story is inspirational to other people fighting other causes that they can, through baby steps, actually get mm -hmm. things done. It's ironic that the place that gave you a great career on some level, but also caused you so much suffering on another level, was what gave you the bona fides to convince people to change the world. I mean, well, like I said, my life has worked in mysterious ways. You know, when I went to work at Fox, quite honestly, this is now, gosh, 17 years ago. Um, I came from CBS News where I was doing the Saturday morning early show. My dream in life was to do a five day a week, Monday through Friday morning show on the national level. Mm -hmm. So when Fox asked me, asked me to do it, I wasn't even thinking about the political aspect of mm -hmm. it all. Fox was very different 17 years yes. ago. Yeah. But whoever thought that I'd be passing legislation? 
I guess I would just say that I've, I always wanted to go to law school and yeah. I never did, but I sort of feel like now I'm a, I'm a half lawyer and a half politician. Well, I mean, that leads me to my next question, which I'm so curious about. Is there a political career ahead of you, Gretchen? Yeah, you know, maybe I am really upfront person. So I'm not like one of those people that when you ask them, hey, are, are you going to run for president? And they like him and haw. Um, <laughs> I, I, I love the political system. I wish it weren't so brutal on people's personal lives. But um, I, I never say never. And because my life has worked in such weird ways, um, it's definitely on my bucket list. And I just don't know if I'll pull the trigger or if, you know, if it'll be something that will actually happen. But every day oh. I wake up is a new surreal experience. So who knows? I don't know. I'm saying here on State of the Bay, you heard it maybe first, Carlson 2028. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, that long? Oh, no. Just well, yes. I mean, lies this mysterious <laughs> question. Could be 2024. Who knows? But I, I will say this. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. And you've certainly made the workplace a lot safer for people everywhere. So thank you for your work. Thank you. And if people want to learn more information, please go to liftourvoices.org. We'd be glad to hear from you. And of course, if you want to help us on our mission, we would be forever grateful. Well, thank you again. That was Gretchen Carlson. She's the co-founder of the advocacy group Lift Our Voices. Thanks again for being on State of the Bay. Thanks so much. Well, that was Gretchen Carlson. And for a link to Gretchen Carlson's nonprofit, Lift Our Voices, visit the State of the Bay page at KALW.org. And that's it for State of the Bay this week. Many thanks to my co-host and guest tonight, Ethan Elkind, and to our guest, Gretchen Carlson, as well as our listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. If you have a question for next week's guests or you want to email us a story idea, give us a give us a drop us a line at state of the bay at KALW.org or you can tweet us. We're at State of Bay. For a link to this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page at KALW.org. Our engineer this evening was D Minor. Tonight's show was produced by Ann Harper. I'm Grace Wan. Good night and thanks for listening.